Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast, where we discuss all things crypto. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I work here at Wire. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. And this is where we take a deep dive into crypto topics. Topics. Hopefully we make it easy for everyone to follow along, to find some jargon along the way. Today, we will be discussing uh, a topic that is very dear to my heart. It is the current institutionalization of an asset class that is crypto. Today, we have Louis Abood, Head of Research and Fund Manager at Wire Capital. Welcome, Louis. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Louis, we really have a lot in common because we come from a very similar uh, background, which I think uh, is why this discussion is, is going to be very natural uh, for us. So if you don't mind giving us a little bit about your background, and I'll, I'll do the same. Yeah, so I was at a, uh, a long-short equities hedge fund in Australia for over five years. Um, I covered all, most of their tech stocks on the, on the research side, so looking at a lot of software businesses and uh, other mm -hmm. tech companies. Mm -hmm. um, first started looking at crypto markets, sort of Bitcoin markets, uh, in late 2013, after the major run-up to $1,200 on yeah. Mt. Gox and the subsequent crash, I remember I uh, sent an email to uh, my, my cousin and uncle, one's a trader and another's actually a hedge fund manager, and um, we were talking. Well, I had basically proposed Bitcoin as a short when it was at like $900 it's in just over December 2013. Yeah, just regular dinner conversations with uh, you guys, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was over email. I still have the emails, actually. Um, but yeah, we, you know, uh, I, I sort of w w was looking at the, the whole Bitcoin thing a few years before, um, you know, having the, the novel uh, markets like the Silk Road was mm. obviously really interesting from a kind of economic freedom and general e-commerce point of view that you could, um, with this technology, basically remove a lot of the violence in what is actually quite a large market that sees yeah. a lot of transactional activity absolutely uh, and you could actually securely process a whole bunch of transactions that were illegal and wanted to be shut down by the government and i think uh you know that really actually proved a lot of the value of bitcoin mm -hmm. and its mm -hmm. censorship resistant nature anyways kind of getting off topic there but yeah uh joined joined wire officially in February and moved from Sydney over to SF in April. Um, I've known Mike Dunworth, our CEO, for a number of years. He's uh, good friends with my cousin. Um, and he was like my go-to crypto expert when yeah. I first started getting into it in 2013, 2014. Remember our first email conversation between Mike and I was actually about Ripple. Um, <laughs> and we're talking about if we should buy any before they sort of opened up XRP markets for the first time and knew you were actually able to buy it on an exchange for the first time. Yeah. Um, and then a few years later, kind of when the ICO boom started happening late 2016, early 2017, um, you know, I was telling him that they're in a perfect position to, you know, start a fund. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he basically said, well, do you want to come do it with us? And here I am. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, I'll just go over my story and background as well, uh, related to crypto at least. Um, I was selling derivatives and swaps at City for about four years, mostly to family offices and foundations. Um, I went down the proverbial crypto rabbit hole probably in 2016, although I'd heard about Bitcoin for a while. I think it was Ethereum that really started clicking, for, uh, clicking in my head for me. 
Mm. Um, I tried to get the organization, the very large organization that is Citigroup, to uh, uh, trade crypto. Uh, all, <laughs> you know, at the at the time, I was basically just like laughed out of turn uh, the Titanic. Yeah, it, it just wasn't <laughs> going to happen. There's certainly some colleagues that were enthusiastic about it, but always just kind of got shut down by some random md that's just you know that i've never spoken to in my life mm -hmm. um so uh you know while i was at city uh, and discovering more about crypto it, it was really my um what i was really trying to do was find an opportunity where i can uh, find my edge in trading and investments right so really an asset class to develop uh myself as an investment manager um you know i, I looked to my right and my left and of course everyone uh was trading equity derivatives and and they've been doing it since uh, before i was born so it was just impossible for me to discover an edge there then it kind of dawned on me that uh what i'm seeing in crypto uh at, at the time it didn't it, it it didn't really look like an asset class but it, it kind of started clicking for me that this could really be an asset class in in a couple years so by 2017 i became really focused on ico investing um and and building kind of a thesis out and especially the financial primitives mm -hmm. uh, uh space kind of you know in hindsight i i would describe it as the financial primitives kind of space at the time i was just kind of like this looks cool <laughs> yeah this looks take cool. my money yeah uh <laughs> and you know it turned out uh i i became an ico investor in projects like zero x and kyber and uh became kind of became began cryptoing so hard that <laughs> city was just not the place uh for me anymore yeah um then i trained uh turned over to wire um and was really enthusiastic um to really get into the place but being a uh, being a place where i can really still express my interest in markets uh and my uh, uh interest in crypto right and then wire was really a good fit for that uh, I was hired as a uh, as a trader, and I ran the OTC desk for about six months. And now uh, we're we're shifting our focus to really the API and and servicing DEXs and DApps. So my day to day day to day has kind of changed quite a bit, and spend most of my time uh, on internal strategy and business development and things like that. And of course, uh, <laughs> now I'm hosting a podcast as well, I suppose. Um, so moving on. Um, it's been quite an interesting year in markets, right? As it relates to uh, to crypto, we've seen uh, kind of more institutions come into this space. We've also seen the retail investors completely exit this space, and that's had a lot of implications for uh, uh, looking at objective qualities of the market, like spreads and liquidity and volatility. Uh, how how have the markets treated you this year, Louis? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, frankly, pretty badly, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been really difficult kind of managing money under these conditions, um, especially with, a, with an onshore fund because, you know, we, we run a long short fund, but the, mm -hmm. the instruments available for us to, to us, for us to manage our risk are relatively limited just because um, obviously the U.S. regulators are very tough regulators, and they, you know, there aren't any uh, sort of crypto-native derivative products available. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can't short Tron on BitMEX, you right. know, which is right. which is a bit of a downside in a bear market. Uh, you really need to be able to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But look, overall, I think um, 
you know, but the progress that's been made in terms of just developing the market and its infrastructure this year has been pretty solid. Um, I think maybe it didn't meet everybody's expectations, but things rarely do. Um, yeah. I think it's, you know, in business and especially when you're thinking about early stage stuff like this, things take a long time and mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. always get ahead of themselves. It's the mm -hmm. perennial theme of crypto um, and kind of new technology in general. Yep. Uh, and and just going back to like January and December when things were just bonkers, um, spreads you know on OTC desks were like four percent, right? Yeah. And this is because uh, if if you if you're pinging an OTC desk, for example, uh, they're sourcing their pricing from markets like Coinbase and Bitfinex. And if there's a four percent spread between you know arbitrage spread between Coinbase and Bitfinex, then it's not a good return on capital sort of investment. Uh, to uh, to make markets at one percent for uh, for clients, right? Yeah. So the desks at the time were charging ridiculous kind of spreads, and uh, now that whole ball game is completely different. Uh, mm. A lot of the arbitrage has been you know arbed out, if you will, uh, by uh, different quant funds and stuff that have entered the space. Also, high frequencies really hit the space with a bang. Firms like Akuna, Susquehanna, Jump, of course. Uh, have come into market and uh, and and made a huge impact in in not only spreads but volatility uh, and liquidity also, which is all very just healthy, right? This this is how a financial market comes to maturation. Um, have you have you noticed any anything like that in in, in the murmurs of the market when you're trading? Uh... Well, I think you know less so when trading. I'm kind of more specifically just looking at from a higher level, uh, the, the fundamentals of the market. Um, you've seen, uh, so you talked about a couple of kind of trading firms there from the traditional commodity space, FX right. and things. Um, you know, obviously there are some traditional players dabbling in the space, but you're also seeing a few companies kind of position themselves in interesting ways. Uh, I'm talking about new companies, startups, kind of crypto native businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, under this kind of full service investment banking model, you've got uh, companies like Galaxy Digital, which is uh, based out of New York, and Kinetic, yeah. which is based out right? of Hong Kong. Yeah, that's <clears throat> Galaxy's Novogratz's firm. Mm -hmm. And they kind of bring venture capital advisory, principal trading, uh, and asset management all under one roof. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Galaxy recently IPO'd in Canada. Uh, doing a reverse takeover on the TSX. Um, you've also got a few kind of crypto-native companies dabbling in the regulated space. Uh, you know, you've got Coinbase acquiring a broker-dealer um, and an authorized custodian. Uh, I've got a, a bunch of alternative trading systems which can trade security tokens. I think yep. Bitrex just today or yesterday announced a new partnership kind of in that regard. Got companies like Seed CX coming into the market with mm -hmm. a regulated spot and derivatives offering for major cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Uh, and because they have a CEF license, they can launch their own swaps and then offer them to institutions in the space. Um, and there's also like a few independent research firms now. You've got Sari and Fundstrat, which have gained some prominence. Right. Um, so basically what you're seeing is all the trappings of uh, kind of traditional capital markets yeah. are being recreated by startups in the space. And you're also starting to see 
big traditional financial institutions enter the space as well. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see kind of how the approaches of those two camps differ. Um, but interestingly, what it looks like is that mostly all these things are being built around traditional corporate and regulatory structures. Yeah, it'll just be so interesting to see uh, how this all shakes out. Like, you know, Galaxy, of course, is basically uh, bringing the investment banking model to crypto. Uh, but what about when a Citigroup or Goldman mm -hmm. just fully gets into this space is they just have so much capital to deal and, and, and of course, headcount and, and they have the capital to acquire uh, uh, a talent as well. So it'll yeah. be interesting. To and see importantly, that... as well, for the investment banking aspect, uh, you know, they have distribution that Galaxy doesn't have. Right. You know, they can take an investment and market it to you know, every major hedge fund in the world, mm -hmm. whereas Galaxy mm -hmm. doesn't really have that distribution at their fingertips. So, um, you know, distribution was certainly not an issue for ICOs kind of in 2017 because everything was 50 times oversubscribed and right. there was no shortage of capital entering the market. But as the, the capital markets normalize, um, having that broad distribution is going to have a material impact on you know, the amount of people looking at these deals and uh, the access to capital and, you know, hopefully the amount of scrutiny and the, the standards for, uh, you know, disclosures when bringing these mm -hmm, things to the market, mm -hmm. all of that stuff will improve. So considering it's coming from a, a base of basically zero uh, in terms of all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Distribution's huge since I, I think the end goal for the Wall Street sort of firms uh, is to house all this in people's 401ks, right? And if you <laughs> make this all a financial product, and, yeah. and uh, if you have a, a large, you know, ultra high net worth kind of uh, uh, broker dealer model, private banking model or something like that, that's how you really, uh, I think, spread, uh, spread this just, uh, in, in a wide fashion. Yeah, look, the reality is that nobody is better at bringing new products to market than financial institutions. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, well, it's just basically words on pieces of paper, entries in databases. The inter incremental cost of doing this stuff is like paying lawyers and things, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the crypto assets as a opportunity for them is just like any other asset class. Yeah. Um, you yep. know, there are unique risks and issues around like, regulatory issues and security. You know, it's a bearer asset. You've got to keep all that stuff in mind. But mm -hmm. uh, there is no reason why they won't all build businesses around this. They just will. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think you'll start to see, you know, you've got the BACT, which is the, the ICE initiative. Yeah. Uh, when these things start to turn a profit, you're just going to get massive. FOMO from traditional players because they can't look at one of their competitors who's making all this money, you know, trading Bitcoin one day futures and all the other stuff they're doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, just the too too good a too good a uh, underpenetrated market basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, now's a, I think a good time to just dive straight into the ice and. Uh, and, and back just kind of hitting the scene ice for our listeners who don't know is the intercontinental exchange that owns uh the new york stock exchange so uh them entering this market uh to deliver a product uh, i think if one day uh, 
one day settled futures product that is also settled in Bitcoin mm. uh, is going to have a lot of implications for the market. Um, <clears throat> they're really the 800-pound gorilla, right, entering the scene. Yeah, I think uh, ICE is the, the largest exchange operator globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's regarded as quite a well-run business as well. Um, backed is a number of different things kind of under one roof. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, it was actually a Galaxy and Pantera um, worked with their investors in the subsidiary oh, or something that. to that effect. Mm-hmm. They worked with them on it, um, which I think was one of the reasons why Mike Novogratz was so bullish in the last few months. So he must have been disappointed that the market fell after <laughs> the backed announcement. Um, that would have been maybe a little bit embarrassing, but. Yeah, the, 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 the backed thing is, is pretty interesting. So they're doing uh, one-day physically settled Bitcoin futures, which is an interesting choice. Um, most futures markets are longer dated than that. They don't uh, settle after one day. Um, so the futures that exist at the moment, the CME and CBOE futures, are both cash settled, which basically means that you know, if we're trading against each other on the exchange, uh, you know, if, if I go long and then Bitcoin goes up, you pay me the difference in US dollars. You don't have mm. to go yep. and buy Bitcoin and deliver it to me. Yep. Um, but with these backed one-day futures, uh, basically the futures expire at end of day and then you can actually enforce delivery. I don't really know why they decided to do that rather than just having like a spot market and launching longer-dated futures, which would be like a more normal setup. Uh, I suspect it might have something to do with like the security around settling. Maybe it's like easier to settle all of the contracts at the end of day in a secure fashion. If you just like settle all at once, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe you can like net off stuff. You, you're just doing less actual Bitcoin transactions, which is probably better for security. Uh, maybe that's a reason. Maybe it's not. I don't really know there. Um, but they're also doing, uh, they've got a custody solution in there because it's yep. physically delivered futures. They need to be able to take custody of Bitcoin. Um, and there's also some kind of retail payments element. Uh, you know, Starbucks is a partner for Bact. Um, and that's another element of it, which is a bit weird, uh, which is that <laughs> the, the payment, the way they actually want to process the payments is with their own kind of proprietary network. They're not going to do it sort of on-chain um, so there's this kind of recurring theme with the whole backed thing, which is that, right. um, it, you know, all of this stuff is structured like traditional payments infrastructure, traditional trading infrastructure, uh, and it absorbs all of the, um, positives and negatives of, of right. And, that. and there's certainly some negatives. I think we're hearing it in, in the press all the time about rehypothecation and you know funds being commingled. Mm. Uh, I think it's something that you probably can speak to a little better than than myself. Um, uh, how does that how does that work exactly? What the hell does that mean? You know? Yeah, it's a it's a complex topic for you know people coming from a low base of knowledge. So it's probably good to explain it with a bit of context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like from the highest possible level, uh, it's worth noting that financial markets are hugely complex in the sense that the everybody owes each other money mm-hmm. um and 
a lot of the times people can owe each other the same asset and be owed the same asset. One asset can be owed to multiple parties at once. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is by nature of the way things are collateralized and then reloaned out. And it's, yeah. it can be very difficult to assess like the systemic, this is like the main problem with the right. financial crisis in 2008. None of the banks knew kind of what each bank owed each other. Nobody knew who was solvent. Right. Uh, it was just like a total clusterfuck, right? Right. Um, and so in the hedge fund world, uh, there's, the, there's a service called Prime Brokerage and uh, there's an activity that hedge funds engage in, which is borrowing stock. Mm -hmm. um, so hedge funds have what's called a Prime Broker, yep. which is basically an extra level of services offered by an investment bank around securities lending and leverage trading. So if I'm like a normal equities hedge fund trading stocks, I might go to uh, UBS or Morgan Stanley mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. ask them to be my prime broker. Yep. And that means that I'll go back to UBS whenever I want to, say, borrow stock to short it. Yeah. I'd go to them and say, can you find anybody who's willing to lend me that stock? Right. Uh, then they kind of are the the uh, intermediary for that transaction. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm borrowing stock to sell it short, I need to post collateral, right? So I post the collateral with the prime broker. Uh, and what rehypothecation is, is basically an agreement with the prime broker that pretty much all hedge funds enter into that says that all the assets that I post as collateral can then be used by the prime broker to be lent out to other people, mm -hmm. right? So kind of the same concept of, you know, I, I, when we deposit money into a savings account, the bank goes and- Yeah, fractional uh, reserve, fractional basically. Reserve. Yeah, exactly. so that whole element, uh, you know, with a stock certificate, it's got somebody's name on it, right? Mm -hmm. But Bitcoin doesn't work like that. Um, you know, in the end, who, who owns the private keys, arguably, who controls the private keys, controls the Bitcoin. Right. I don't think- Legally, there's probably already been some uh, exploration of this issue, but what defines uh, title over Bitcoin or whatever. Um, yeah. But the main problem is that when, you, when a prime broker takes custody of all this Bitcoin, everybody's Bitcoin is going to be stored in a kind of commingled balance sheet mm -hmm. and will be lent out under those terms as well. And what that means is basically obligation... Uh, the prime broker's clients might all be borrowing and lending from each other and the amount of obligations related to the Bitcoin might actually be greater than the mm -hmm. amount of Bitcoin that they have, uh, which is, you know, occurs with stocks. Um, you know, the funny thing is like the uh, T0 overstocks platform. Right. Um, the, the original like purpose of that was to address this issue around uh, prime brokerage uh, using their own proprietary blockchain. And the problem was that um, Overstock had been subject to naked short selling, which is basically where hedge funds There's borrow, no they, they, sorry, they sell stock that, that they, don't, they haven't actually borrowed. Mm -hmm. um, and people might just think, well, how is that even possible? If you don't have the stock, how can you sell it? Uh, we won't go into that now, but basically... You know, these computer systems will allow you to do things on the assumption that you settle up later, right? Yeah. So if I sell something that I don't own, the assumption is that I'll go and buy it to make the counterparty whole. 
so what can happen with prime brokerage where you can't get transparency over who owns what, who owes what to who, what's being collateralized. Uh, you would get situations where people are selling stock that nobody owns, right? Um, and Overstock, the T0 platform is going to be a solution to basically make all that transparent so you can't have that kind of naked short selling situation. Uh, so it's kind of ironic. I don't think that's the primary purpose of the platform now, mm -hmm. but that was the issue. And it's kind of ironic that now that problem is being faced by, you know, primarily Bitcoin because it's first in line for financialization. But, you know, eventually probably every cryptocurrency will face a similar problem uh, in terms of its exposure to these systemic risks that, you know, would trying to be eliminated by the design of bitcoin in the first place right it's it's all just so anti antithetical to bitcoin itself but yep. uh just staples of wall street right uh indeed like yeah. you know in the end they don't really care that much about bitcoin or what it does they're um, here they to make money they don't really care about ethereum mm -hmm. i think from the most part still to this day even after the amount of traction that crypto got as a retail investment in 2017 the uh, very few people in Wall Street view crypto as like a threat to their business structurally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yep. And I think probably in terms of like what incumbents think about crypto, probably crypt, uh, tech companies are probably more wary of it now than uh, financial governments and tech companies, I'd say, are probably more threatened by crypto now than you know, the Goldman Sachs's of the world. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that they're going to, if there is a business to be built around crypto, they're going to build it their way. Um, yep. And that means that, you know, this whole industry will be infected by these systemic risks that uh, the design of the technology was supposed to prevent. Um, you know, the ETF is the, the primal example of that. Yeah, Wall, Wall Street loves making financial products and sticking them in people's 401ks. Yep. And the ETF is really uh, the first and foremost example of, of, of that. Uh, and the entire market, you know, even crypto heads are so consumed by what's going on in that, in the ETF debacle, uh, uh, right? So uh, there's several ETFs. Uh, or proposals for ETFs that have hit the SEC and other regulatory bodies, and all of them have been denied uh, so far. I believe there's one still uh, outstanding, right, that, yep. that could be approved. Um, for listeners who don't know, an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. It's uh, What that is is really just a container uh, to hold different securities or assets, and that container is traded uh, live on some sort of exchange. Uh, and has live pricing, which is kind of unlike a mutual fund, which is marked at the end of the day, and it's kind of a different vehicle. Uh, it was really um, introduced to the financial markets in the late 1990s or say, uh, or so. Um, Louis, anything you'd want to add to that definition? Uh, look, you could probably look it up on Investopedia and get a pretty good feel yeah. for for how they work. Um, Investopedia is a great resource for stuff like that. I highly recommend it. Absolutely. So. What's kind of going on here? Why why is an ETF even important uh, to the market, and uh, why do people care about it so much? Mm. And uh, why are all of the ETFs getting rejected? Is there some sort of timeline or vision for for them getting approved? 
Yeah. Uh, so there's a few questions there. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it is one of the more talked about things, especially in relation to Bitcoin markets. Is it fundamentally important for Bitcoin? No, definitely not. Right. Mm -hmm. it, the, the SEC commissioner that dissented on the rejection of the, the Winklevi ETF's <laughs> second rejection uh, said that, you know, this is the SEC's hurting innovation by rejecting this Bitcoin ETF. Um, that's nothing could, could be further be, from Yeah, it's just so not correct, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's interesting that in the last couple of weeks, um, you've seen, uh, you know, some prominent members of the Bitcoin community come out and say, no, an ETF is not a good thing. Um, but I think your question was probably more, why does the market care about it? And mm -hmm. it's pretty simple. It's just like distribution, right? And it allows a wide audience of investors, both retail and institutional. Right. If, if you look to... at the gold market, for example, and, and you know, uh, yeah. the moment after a gold ETF was brought to life, the spot markets for gold also took took off, and you can actually look at the correlation between, uh, you know, gold prices and really the holdings of gold, basically the assets under management for gold ETFs. Yeah, right? I've seen that talked up a bit. Um, yeah. I mean, we're talking that that impact was over a number of years, so uh, I don't think it's. My feeling is that if it, if the the remaining application is approved, it's going to be like a big day for bitcoin like plus 30 mm percent -hmm. or whatever yep um and and the applications that are being floated around are uh fundamentally quite different from each other right there's uh ones for for uh, spot uh bitcoin so actual bitcoin in the etf and then there's the uh ones that are just for the futures market of mm. bitcoin which really mean two different things and you know, this is another yes topic no. we can get into is like yeah. the actual futures market is just so small compared um, to. Yeah, so. the the uh, Winklevoss ETF that got rejected was uh, supposed to trade the underlying uh, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I think primarily on Gemini, which is obviously their exchange. Very self-serving. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably didn't help their application in hindsight. Um, and the, the remaining, so that one that got rejected was for trading actual Bitcoin, um, and the remaining application, the one that everyone is excited about, I should note, which is the Van Eyck Solidex CBOE ETF, mm -hmm. uh, which is due for a decision probably in about February next year. Mm -hmm. Um, those two, yeah, so... Basically, what the, the ETF provider does is when they get an investment in the ETF, they then go and buy Bitcoin straight away. And it's all kind of one-to-one -one backed by Bitcoin. And they'll buy it from a number of exchanges or OTC desks um, and they'll source their pricing for valuing the fund uh, from spot markets. Uh, all of the nine ETFs that were rejected just this week, um, they were all for trading... Bitcoin futures. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, when people buy into that ETF, the ETF provider just goes and buys futures. <clears throat> yeah. And they had long and short ETFs. Yeah, there's some uh, fun ones in there, right? Like 2x yeah, short. Like a 2x <laughs> short Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. Uh, which you can just imagine how that can go wrong. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't want to be short something with like super asymmetrical 
yeah, uh, unlimited upside. upside potential. Yeah, um, especially not two x leveraged. Um, that was obviously never going to get through just on like uh, investor protection grounds. Well, I mean, all of them were rejected on investor protection grounds. I assume mm -hmm. we'll talk more about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so the, there were a whole bunch of long and short futures ETFs, which is basically an ETF, which is like a, a thing that trades on a stock exchange. Uh, you buy into that because it's really easy to buy things on stock exchanges. It's like a easy on-ramp for mm -hmm, traditional mm -hmm. financial players mm -hmm. to buy Bitcoin. They don't have to worry about storing it, whatever. It's like a clean, simple solution from their perspective. And you can put it in a 401k. You can put it anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, the, the main problem, though, especially for the, you know, uh, the ones, the ETFs that buy the underlying, is that, you know, you don't control the private keys, you don't control the Bitcoin um, you're subject to all of the counterparty risk that mm. you have with, you know, storing Bitcoin on a crypto exchange, right? It's mm. really no different to yep. that fundamentally, um, except perhaps the person storing the ETF has a, uh, has a smaller track record than most crypto exchanges. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it is, as we said, like very antithetical to the the counterparty free bearer asset nature of Bitcoin ownership. Um, people are bullish on it because, you know, it'll increase demand. ETF providers will actually yeah. have to go out into the market yeah, to buy they the have stuff. Some big bags. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's kind of my view on this is kind of it'll play out similar to the way that the launch of the CME futures played out in, in 2017. Everyone was really excited about that. Mm -hmm, uh, like mm -hmm. that was one of the most bullish drivers of the second half of 2017 yeah, but was the listing of these, these futures. Uh, but the thing is, like, like a lot of things in crypto and kind of in financial markets generally, uh, when that event actually happens and you get to see what actually plays out that's when you get the disappointment um so i think the overall volumes of the futures were disappointing to most um and the you know the, the flip side of that obviously is that with futures the market becomes a two-sided market people can short it right right um and that's that's the other thing that sort of people tend to play down in terms of the impact of traditional finance on these markets is that there are a lot more shorting instruments about to come online uh, and there are a lot of cynical fund managers who will <laughs> do a lot of work and coming up with really well-researched short theses and basically what was like a really crowded one-way market where yeah. everybody was bullish, everybody was long. Mm -hmm. You know, now that's going to start to break down. It's going to start looking more like, you know, <clears throat> Tesla stock basically. Yeah, and, and in traditional markets... Uh the futures price usually dictates the spot price, right? Because the futures yeah. markets or uh, the derivatives markets in general are just many times. Yeah, because uh, people use futures the... to trade with leverage. Um, you know, they trade bigger size. There's more volume. It's more liquid. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the tail wags the dog, as they like to say. Yeah. Uh, and I think that will eventually happen. It's arguably happening with, Sorry, let me rephrase. It arguably happened to Bitcoin back in like 2015 when uh, the OKCoin OK quarterly futures 
became the uh, the driving force of the market. Yep. The the amount of volume being traded there was greater than uh, the spot markets. And now BitMEX kind of takes that crown. Now that OKCoin's OK lost a lot of its market share. Um, yeah. So, you know, arguably BitMEX drives the market now, which I'm sure makes people comfortable knowing kind of, you know, the products that they sell to the kind of people that use them and yeah. like their it's systems and uh, some of their behavior has not always been. I mean, if you're not using exemplary, if you're not using all 100x leverage, you're just not living, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, look, all that stuff, uh, you know, the the impact that futures will have, you know, like uh, all of the, the new markets that BitMEX listed their swap products for have all been smashed, right? Um, so, you know, they listed Ether, then Ether got wrecked. Um, I think, you know, Tron and a whole bunch of others they listed and they've all significantly underperformed oh, really? since BitMEX listed them. And basically, hmm. you know, in a lot of cases, this was the first access to shorting instruments for these assets that people had. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that has an impact. Um, it makes the market two-sided mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it gives people an incentive to be bearish spread, you know, FUD, <laughs> my, my least favorite term that I just used. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you'll, you'll see that both with more derivative products coming from like the crypto exchanges and also from traditional financial institutions. Which is healthy, right? That's how a, a market becomes yeah. more mature and spreads are... Uh, That's how you find yeah. prices yep. um, by, you know, having a, a liquid market. Yep. Um, which is, you know, that's kind of the basis for... Uh, you know, people talk about oh, how can it be that like the, the futures interest over gold is like a hundred times the value of all the gold in the world and stuff like that. And that's because futures traders trade against each other. So, you, you know, you can go long and trade against me going short and nobody really needs to touch the underlying. We're just betting on the price. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's that activity which grows significantly over time and becomes many multiples of people actually trading the underlying. Mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think we're getting slightly off topic. Especially yeah, talking uh, about ETFs rolling, and rolling back rejected. to yeah. <laughs> ETFs. Um, what are the expectations uh, for regulators to actually approve an mm. ETF? I think you uh, put out some good thought pieces around this. Yeah, and I've been doing some research. Posted uh, a post on Medium about a month ago, mm -hmm. just after the um, after the Winklevoss. ETF got rejected for the second time, basically like on appeal. Um, yep. I noticed everyone, kind of the crypto Twitter experts were saying that this one was always going to fail. This one is not the one that matters. There's all these other ones and they're more likely to succeed. And, uh, you know, those people are either deceiving themselves or, um, you know, haven't done the, done the research. If you just read the, you know, the SEC, the disclosure around what they're thinking is extremely detailed and clear yes. and it's all public information so mm -hmm. no professional investor in the space really has an excuse to not understanding what exactly is going on here uh, but basically what they said was that uh, they need the ETF provider to demonstrate how they're going to police market mm -hmm. manipulation mm -hmm. uh, now if you think about uh, 
other markets on which ETFs are based often are less fragmented. You know, there are a lot of different crypto exchanges based in different jurisdictions, uh, you know, trading against different fiat currencies. Um, there's just a lot going on in a lot of different places, none of which really have any oversight. Uh, and what the SEC basically said was, in order for us to get comfortable with, you know, a market that the DOJ is investigating for price manipulation, that the CFTC is investigating for price manipulation, in order for us to get comfortable there, the ETF provider will have to enter into surveillance sharing agreements with uh, major spot markets or futures markets. Mm -hmm. Specifically, spot or futures markets of a significant size. Um, ah. And what they're saying is that, you know, the ETF provider needs to sign a bunch of contracts with, you know, the major spot exchanges like Bitfinex, GDAX, Binance, um, arguably not Binance. I don't know if they include USDT trading kind of in that analysis, but uh, they need to sign these contracts basically saying that whenever the ETF provider wants to get comprehensive trading data from the exchange, the exchange will give it to them without let or hindrance. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so basically it's, it's an ability for regulators to get eyeballs on what's going on on these exchanges. Uh, and none of the exchanges really want to enter into these agreements. Um, a bunch of exchanges did enter into these agreements for the futures markets. Um, I think it was like Kraken and Coinbase and Ipit uh, or Bitflyer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was a whole spat over them not wanting to share a bunch of information uh, I think that was in June or yeah, it was May. like one day of trading data and yeah, uh, it was like they, they wanted the CFTC or the CME originally asked for days trading data around like the settlement date of the futures, and uh, I think all of the exchanges. I don't want to kind of slander them here, but it's mm -hmm. all in you know public record. You can Google it. All the exchanges basically denied the request. Um, and the CFTC didn't like that because the CFTC, I think, was running on the assumption that they didn't have the legal right to deny these requests mm. and that the surveillance sharing agreement would force the exchanges to participate. Um, there was a dispute there, and that resulted in the CFTC launching an investigation of their own. Um, but yeah, I mean, what they're going to want to see is kind of what Gemini and... Uh, I can't remember who else was working with them on it, but it just it's come out recently that they're working on like a self-regulatory organization right, right. and they want to basically enter all these agreements. So they finally realized that, you know, they made arguments like, well, the Bitcoin markets are too hard to manipulate, so we don't need to enter these surveillance share agreements. Basically, the SEC shot down all their arguments, said very clearly you need surveillance sharing agreements with either the spot markets or derivative markets of a significant size. Mm -hmm. And the second kind of leg to that basically means that when the futures markets are driving the price, when the tail is wagging the dog and futures volumes are, you know, several multiples of spot market trading volumes, then that's when simply having surveillance sharing agreements with like the CME and whoever's trading the futures will be sufficient because if you want to manipulate the price, you're going to have to be trading the futures because that will probably become the most significant market. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, well, it's definitely been a significant year for uh, the crypto institutional market. Mm. Um, what do you envision is going, how do you think this is all going to shake out? Uh, what's your vision for, for the financialization of this market I, in the upcoming year? I hope that <clears throat> it's, it's incumbent on the, the coin bases of the world um, <clears throat> you know the Binance of the Binances of the world as well uh, to really come up with their own products that meet the philosophy of crypto but also appeal to traditional financial institutions I think it'll be a disservice to the technology if you know bulge bracket investment banks are driving the financialization of crypto um, I think it's it's going to be much more beneficial for everyone involved uh, kind of on the crypto side if we kind of determine our own future and don't let this asset base basically get infected with all the uh, murky counterparty risk mm -hmm. issues that exist in, you know, what we want this to be is a standalone alternate financial system and monetary system based on software, based on peer-to-peer -peer networks that are decentralized and uh, uncensorable. Um, that's what we want to build. That's what, you know, the smartest people in this industry are trying to build. Yeah. Um, but it's not the easiest way to a one or $10 trillion market size. The easiest way to one or $10 trillion market size is just to sell out Street. to Wall Street yep. as quickly as possible, kind of uh, unload your bags on, you know, the so-called smart institutional money yeah. that's going to come in, ironically, after all the retail punters have left the building, <laughs> um, which is not usually how things go, right? Uh, right, right. But, you know, it's... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay positive with it all. I think it's good that there are, the trading firms especially... I think we'll be on top of things and we'll be looking at how to integrate developments with the technology into their business. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of like how I did with payments, mm -hmm. um, but they'll do it kind of more around uh, the trading aspect. Um, You're talking about Binance, for example, uh, like no, a Binance I meant, getting into DEXs? I meant more like a, like the, the, I mean, obviously Binance will do that, yeah. uh, but more like the jumps of, of the world. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very early for them, but I think, I think they're, they're sort of smart and nimble enough to recognize that there's a big opportunity in, um, you know, actually developing business operations around the unique strengths of this technology rather than kind of doing it the easiest possible way. Yeah. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see, and it's not going to help that, uh, you know, certain members of the community cheer on all of this, you know, wall streety institutionalization yeah. because they're just looking to, you know, make Profit. a buck, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not begrudging that. It's just that, um, you know, obviously if you're a, especially if you're like a Bitcoin maximalist type and you think like, ETH, the, like the Ethereum network, is not sufficiently decentralized. Uh, to be cheering on an ETF is pretty stupid. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. 
Wow, Louis, just always a wealth of knowledge with you. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Um, how can people get in touch with you or read more about your work? Um, post on Medium under Wire Capital and mm -hmm. my name, Louis Aboud, A-B-O-U-D. Um, and if you just Google Wire Capital, go to our website, you can find an email address if you want to reach out. Uh, also on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at Lou Abood Hogman, which nobody's going to be able to figure out. But I think uh, if, you, if you find us on Medium, you can get the links to everything else. That's probably the easiest way. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that's, yeah, you can do that. Thank you for joining, Louis. Thank you <laughs> Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about crypto markets, check out the show notes included in your podcast. And remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends on whichever social media platform you prefer. Thank you for listening.